Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Topeka Capital Journal, The Military Times, Nature Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, The Arkansas Democrat and Gazette, and The New York Times. We're going to start off today's African American Hour with a story from the Jefferson City, Missouri News Tribune and its Newstribune.com website. The title is 18-Year-Old College Student Elected Mayor of Arkansas City. It was written by the Associated Press and was published December 9, 2022. An 18-year-old college student has been elected to serve as mayor of a small East Arkansas city, becoming one of the youngest people to serve as the city's top leader in the U.S. Jalen Smith, who is black, was elected mayor of Earl in Tuesday's runoff election, winning 235 votes to Nimi Matthews, 183 according to complete but unofficial results. He's among the youngest mayors elected in the United States and would be the youngest member of the African American Mayors Association. Phyllis Dickerson, chief executive officer of the association, told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette that the association's current youngest member is Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb, who is 35. Smith is among a handful of people elected mayor before turning 20, including Michael Sessions, who was elected mayor of Hillsdale, Michigan in 2005 when he was 18, and John Taylor Hammonds, who was elected mayor of Muskogee, Oklahoma in 2008 when he was 19. Smith, who graduated from Earl High School in May, campaigned on improving public safety and bringing new businesses, including a grocery store, to the city of about 1,800 people 25 miles northwest of Memphis, Tennessee. He is a student at Arkansas State University Mid-South in West Memphis, Arkansas. People looking at me, well, I'm too young. He has no experience. He's fresh out of high school, Smith told Little Rock TV station KATV. But I used to always tell people, you have to start somewhere in life. That was a reading of the article. 18-year-old college student elected mayor of Arkansas City. The article was written by the Associated Press. It appeared at the Newstribune.com website, which is the website of the Jefferson City, Missouri News Tribune, on December 9, 2022. The next story on today's African American Hour is from the Topeka Capital Journal and its CJOnline.com website. The title is, Black Pioneer Spirit Lives On in Nicodemus Amid Efforts to Create Visitor's Center. It was written by Diane Regas and was published November 11, 2022. It was nearly 150 years ago, in a sun-baked corner of Kansas, that one of the first western towns built by and for black settlers took shape. Called Nicodemus, it became a magnet after the Civil War for freed black Americans in the South who faced brutal racism and a lack of opportunity. About 300 settlers, most from Kentucky, arrived in Nicodemus in the fall of 1877 to start a new life in the West. The preservation of that history began a quarter century ago when the National Park Service named Nicodemus a National Historic Site. The designation was an outlier of sorts. Relatively few historic sites in the United States showcase the experiences of black Americans. 
Of the 97,000 sites listed on the National Register of Historic Places, for example, around 2,600 focus on black history and culture. With a black population of less than 6%, the state whose motto ad astra per aspera means to the stars through difficulties sought to elevate that part of its heritage. While there are now only 20 residents remaining in the town of Nicodemus, every July, hundreds of former residents and descendants of the founders return for a weekend of festivities as part of the homecoming emancipation celebration, including parades, music, lectures, church services, and food. Angela Bates, executive director of the Nicodemus Historical Society, grew up in Pasadena, California but remembers returning to Nicodemus with her family every summer as a girl. I'm a descendant of those first settlers, black pioneers, cowboys and buffalo soldiers, she said recently. It was in my blood. I was passionate about this history. What keeps Nicodemus surviving even to this day is not only our spirit of determination, but the idea that every year we come back and reconnect with the town and this place called Nicodemus. Today, Nicodemus is an unincorporated area in Graham County, sprawling across 32 square miles. Before European settlement, the region was home to many Native American tribes whose descendants still live in Kansas. In the 1870s, when it became the first black community west of the Mississippi River, Nicodemus was poised for takeoff. By the mid-1880s, it was a thriving town of 1,000 people on the banks of the Solomon River. There were two newspapers, three general stores, and several churches along with hotels, a bank, and a livery. It was a proud outpost of the Great Plains, a prosperous municipality comprised almost entirely of black families. But when a new railroad came to the county in the late 19th century, the train tracks were rerouted to bypass Nicodemus, prompting a number of businesses to move away. That was followed by the Dust Bowl with its devastating effects on farming and the Great Depression. The town's population had declined to just 76 people in 1935, and many residents lost their land. A new chapter in Nicodemus is now underway. While the permanent population may be tiny, the town's impressive role in the settlement of the West by former slaves is gaining greater recognition. The Nicodemus National Historic Site provides an opportunity for Kansas and out-of-state visitors alike to learn about one of the nation's most enduring stories of black history and culture. The hopes and struggles of an intrepid group of newly freed Americans as they stake their claim on the frontier. Connecting with that history binds us not only to our shared heritage, but to one another. Even though I am not a descendant of Nicodemus, I feel pride in this place, said Jocelyn Imani, Trust for Public Land's National Black History and Culture Director, who visited the homecoming celebration. You hear people say, I'm a fifth generation or sixth generation descendant. It's such an American story. Nicodemus Homecoming should be a high priority destination for everyone. The National Park Service, together with residents and supporters, maintains the five remaining historic buildings that make up the site. The St. Francis Hotel, 1881, African Methodist Episcopal Church, 1885, First Baptist Church, 1907, Nicodemus School District No. 1 Building, 1918, and Nicodemus Township Hall, 1939. 
But Nicodemus has the potential to attract more visitors and to breathe new life into the small but resilient residential community. Following its designation as a National Historic Site in 1996, Trust for Public Land helped protect the AME Church. The site still lacks a permanent visitor center, however. With the National Park Service and Nicodemus community as partners, we plan to establish such a center to tell this unique story. To that end, and with support from Sony Pictures and the National Park Foundation, we recently acquired land in Nicodemus and donated it to the National Park Service. Now the work of creating a visitor center worthy of Nicodemus's remarkable history begins. Through education and conversation, a new generation will have a chance to engage in the past, present, and future of Nicodemus. As Bates of the Nicodemus Historical Society puts it, it's important that our chapter in American history be preserved. We are not an afterthought. We are part of the story. We should have been at the forefront all along. But what better time than now? That was a reading of Black Pioneer Spirit Lives On in Nicodemus Amid Efforts to Create Visitor Center. It was written by Diane Regas and was published by the Topeka Capital Journal on November 11, 2022 at its cjonline.com website. The next reading on today's African American Hour is from the MilitaryTimes.com website. The title is, Lawsuit Accuses Veterans Administration of Racial Discrimination in Benefits Decisions. It was published November 28, 2022, and was written by Leo Shane III. Black veterans are less likely to have their benefits claims processed and paid out than their white peers because of systemic problems within the Department of Veterans Affairs, according to a lawsuit filed against the agency Monday. A black veteran who served honorably can walk into the VA, file a disability claim, and be at a significantly higher likelihood of having that claim denied, said Adam Henderson, a student working with the Yale Law School Veterans Legal Services Clinic, one of several groups connected to the lawsuit. The Veterans Administration has denied countless meritorious applications of black veterans and thus deprived them and their families of the support that they are entitled to. The suit filed in federal court by the clinic on behalf of Vietnam War veteran Conley Mock Jr. asked for redress for the harms caused by the failure of VA staff and leaders to administer these benefits programs in a manner free from racial discrimination against black veterans. In a press conference announcing the lawsuit, the effort received backing from Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, who called it an unacceptable situation. Black veterans are denied benefits at a very significantly disproportionate rate, he said. We know the results. We want to know the reason why. The suit stems from an analysis of Veterans Administration claims records released by the department following an earlier legal action. Between 2001 and 2020, the average denial rate disability claims filed for black veterans was 29.5%, significantly above the 24.2% for white veterans. Attorneys allege the problems date back even further and that VA officials should have known about the racial disparities in the system from previous complaints. The negligence of VA leadership in their failure to train, supervise, monitor, and instruct agency officials to take steps to identify and correct racial disparities led to systemic benefits obstruction for black veterans, the suit states. 
Mock is a black disabled Marine Corps veteran who previously sued the military to overturn his less than honorable military discharge due to complications from undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder. He was subsequently granted access to a host of veterans' benefits, but not to retroactive payouts for claims he was denied back in the 1970s. They didn't fully compensate me or my family, he said. I wasn't able to give my kids my educational benefits. We should have been receiving checks while they were growing up. Along with potential past benefits for Monk, individuals involved with the lawsuit said the move could force the Veterans Administration to reassess thousands of other unfairly dismissed cases. For decades, the United States government has allowed racially discriminatory practices to obstruct black veterans from easily accessing veterans' housing, education, and health care benefits with wide-reaching economic consequences for black veterans and their families, said Richard Brookshire, executive director of the Black Veterans Project. This lawsuit reckons with the shameful history of racism by the Department of Veteran Affairs and seeks to redress long-standing improprieties reverberating across generations of black military service. In a statement, VA Press Secretary Terrence Hayes did not directly respond to the lawsuit, but noted that throughout history, there have been unacceptable disparities in both VA benefits decisions and military discharge status due to racism, which have wrongly left black veterans without access to VA care and benefits. We are actively working to right these wrongs, and we will stop at nothing to ensure that all black veterans get the VA services they have earned and deserve, he said. We are currently studying racial disparities in benefits claims decisions, and we will publish the results of that study as soon as they are available. Hayes said the department has already begun targeted outreach to black veterans to help them with claims and is taking steps to ensure that our claims process combats institutional racism rather than perpetuating it. That was a reading of the article, Lawsuit Accuses Veterans Administration of Racial Discrimination in Benefits Decisions. It was written by Leo Shane III and appeared at the MilitaryTimes.com website on November 28, 2022. The next reading on today's African American Hour is from Nature Magazine and its Nature.com website. The title of the article is Beyond Anything I Could Have Imagined, Graduate Students Speak Out About Racism. It was written by Chris Woolston and was published November 30th, 2022. The subtitle to the article is Bias and discrimination are rife in master's and Ph.D. programs worldwide, a nature survey finds. Science is often portrayed as a meritocracy in which one's ideas and abilities matter more than anything else. But nature's 2022 survey of Ph.D. and master's students points to an unpleasant reality. Those who identify as members of minority ethnic groups face a greater share of discrimination and indignities than do students who aren't in those groups. The survey drew 3,253 self-selected responses from around the world. 21% of respondents identify as members of minority racial or ethnic groups in countries where they currently live. Through survey responses and free text comments, they describe mistreatment and struggles that go beyond the typical challenges of graduate school. From structural racism in institutions, to microaggressions committed by peers. Nature's previous surveys polled respondents about their experiences of discrimination and bias. 
This year's survey was the first to examine those experiences more deeply. Some 35% of respondents from minority racial or ethnic groups say that they have experienced discrimination or harassment during their current program. That's more than twice the rate reported by respondents who do not identify as members of those groups, 15%. The sheer amount of sexism and racism that I faced as I pursue my doctoral degree is beyond anything I could have imagined, writes a PhD student in the United States. Moreover, 26% of students from underrepresented groups and 15% of students who are not from such groups say that they have experienced bullying during their program. A vocal group of respondents shared their personal experiences of racism in the survey's free text section. A master's student in the United States wrote, Supervisors do not care about how their trainees face racism, homophobia, sexism, and other barriers, but will pretend they do by using pronouns and rainbow flags. A PhD student in Germany commented, My supervisor was racist towards me and made my life a living hell. She still went on to say that when she reported the behavior to her institution, she was told that administrators were already aware of issues with that particular supervisor. When asked what they wished they had known before starting graduate school, a master's student from Africa studying in China wrote, I wish I had known how racist and abusive the dean and management are. A PhD student in the United States said, I wish I'd known how prevalent and normal racism and sexism is in academia. I probably would have angered less people and had a better strategy for survival if I knew this culture was the norm. Another PhD student in the United States wrote that racist comments and attitudes can take a toll on mental health. In the survey, students from underrepresented groups are more likely at 38% to report receiving help from depression or anxiety caused by their graduate studies than are students who are not from those groups, 32%. Despite a rise in discussions about equality and diversity on campuses and in the workplace, racism seems to be as prevalent as ever in academia and beyond, says Kevin Lala, an evolutionary biologist at the University of St. Andrews in the United Kingdom. Lala, whose father is from India, has for decades used the anglicized surname Leyland. Lala now uses his father's actual surname in a nod to his heritage. In the United Kingdom, there have been trends for the worse, not for the better in recent years, he says. Many of our undergraduate and graduate students have experienced racial harassment. Lala, who discussed racism in academia in a Nature column in 2020, says that racist slurs and other overt acts tend to be more common off-campus than in university labs and classrooms. Universities are relatively benign environments compared to the rest of the world, he says. Despite this, he says, racism remains deeply woven into academia and institutions, especially when it comes to hiring, promotion, and student retention. According to the United States National Science Foundation, members of minority ethnic and racial groups held less than 10% of doctorate-level positions in science, engineering, and health in 2019, despite comprising more than 30% of the United States population. Similarly, a UK Royal Society report estimates that black scholars account for 1.7% of all academic positions in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics in the United Kingdom in 2019, 
although the black population in England and Wales for that year was estimated by the Office for National Statistics at 3.5%. Anecdotally, black scholars in the United Kingdom have reported that they are the only black person in their department or institution and sometimes in their field. Lala says that those who are members of underrepresented groups clearly have a more difficult time reaching their highest levels of UK academia. People of color are pretty well represented across tertiary education in general, he says. But when you look at the top universities and the higher echelons of universities, they are highly underrepresented. He notes that many hiring committees lack members of color and that job advertisements aren't necessarily reaching diverse communities. There are subtle things that bias the landscape against minority groups, he says. Nature interviewed three survey respondents who say they have experienced racism in their training. An African-American Ph.D. student in the United States, a Ph.D. student in Spain who is from India, and a Brazilian Ph.D. student in Canada. All three spoke on the condition of anonymity. The next section of the article is subtitled Microaggressions. The U.S. Ph.D. student says that he heard racially tinged comments from supervisors and fellow students during his undergraduate training at a university in the southeastern part of the country. I was frequently the only black person in my upper level biology courses, he says. There were a lot of microaggressions. People would call me articulate, which felt racially motivated. I speak normal English. During his time at the university, two incoming first-year students were banned from campus after sharing blatantly racist posts on social media. In the aftermath, he and a couple of other black students met a department head to discuss their concerns. We talked about being fearful to speak out in class, he says. He was very dismissive. He wasn't listening to what we were saying. He says that he hasn't sensed any racism during his graduate program at a university in the Midwest. The institution, he says, recently hired a new dean for graduate diversity and inclusion. In another positive step, there is now a mental health counselor who exclusively serves graduate students. The university is more responsive to the issues that we have, he says, and they're making their experience better as things go along. Nevertheless, he says he has some questions about the university's recruitment strategy for students. His advisor sits on the admissions committee, so he's had a chance to meet and interact with applicants. The university, he says, could be more assertive in attracting and retaining students from underrepresented groups. I see a lot of minority applicants, but they don't come out the other side and actually enroll. The next section of the article is subtitled Indian Way of Working. The Indian student in Spain says that she needs regular counseling sessions to help her cope with the stress and anxiety of dealing with her supervisor. She says the supervisor is harsh to everyone in the lab, not just to students from underrepresented groups. But, says the student, the supervisor does save some of her most biting comments for people from other countries. One morning, the student says, she came in 15 minutes late after putting in extra hours the night before. My supervisor got really bossy with me and asked, is that the Indian way of working? I was really shocked. She's judging me based on the country that I'm from, and that's not correct. Other researchers and students at the institution are welcoming and easy to work with, she says. Everyone is respectful of one another. 
The Brazilian student in Canada had struggles of her own at the beginning of her PhD program. She says that her supervisor, who was from another country herself, frequently belittled her English and scientific skills. At first, I thought she was just trying to get the best out of me, but I noticed she was treating me differently to other students in the lab, she says. She said it was a mistake to accept me as a PhD student because students from Brazil can't achieve the same levels as students from Canada because the education in my country is really poor. Feeling unwelcome and unsupported, the student reached out to the Academic Affairs Office where she was advised that she could either convert her PhD to a master's program and graduate early or change labs and supervisors. She decided to change labs and says that she now feels much more at ease. All the same, she wishes that there was a way for supervisors to be held accountable for mistreatment. If they don't face consequences for unfair and discriminatory behavior, she says, it's going to keep happening. There are several graphs that accompany this story. First, there are four circle graphs. The first of those circle graphs asks the question, do you consider yourself to be a member of a minority racial or ethnic group at your institution? 2% prefer not to say, 21% say yes, and 77% say no. The next circle graph asks the question, if yes, have you experienced discrimination or harassment during your graduate studies? 6% prefer not to say, 35% say yes, and 59% say no. The next circle graph asks the question, are you studying in the country you grew up in? 34% say yes, 66% say no. The last circle graph asks the question, do you have caring responsibilities for children or adults? 22% say yes, and 78% say no. The next graph is a bar graph. This graph asks the question, as a member of a minority racial or ethnic group, what types of discrimination or harassment have you experienced? 64% say racial discrimination or harassment, 34% say gender discrimination, 15% say age discrimination, 12% say religious discrimination, 11% say sexual harassment, 8% say discrimination or harassment based on sexual orientation or trans status, 8% say disability discrimination, 5% say discrimination relating to parent or career responsibilities. 5% say discrimination or harassment based on culture or nationality. 2% say other. And 1% says prefer not to say. The next question asks, have you experienced bullying during your graduate program? 28% in African institutions say yes. 27% in European institutions say yes. 26% say yes in Australasian institutions. 26% say yes in North or Central American institutions. 23% say yes in South American institutions. And 20% say yes in Asia, including the Middle East. The next bar graph is related to the previous bar graph I just described. The title of this bar graph is who was the perpetrator? 41% say another student. 40% say a supervisor. 
39% say other academic staff members, 6% say postdoctoral students, 1% says online trolls, 6% says other, and 3% say prefer not to say. In the final bar graph, ask, can you speak out freely about being bullied? 22% say yes, 59% say no, and 19% are unsure. That was a reading of the article, Beyond Anything I Could Have Imagined, Graduate Students Speak Out About Racism, subtitled, Bias and Discrimination Are Rife in Master's and Ph.D. Programs Worldwide, a Nature Survey Finds. It was written by Chris Wilston and was published at the Nature.com website November 30th, 2022. The next reading on today's African American Hour is a book review from the Wall Street Journal. The title of the article is The Banjo's Resonant Story. It was written by David Yezzy and was published November 12th, 2022. The title of the book is Well of Souls by Christina R. Gaddy. It is 284 pages long. The banjo gets a bum rap, a staple of American country music. Its bright tone and rhythmic clangor threatened to overwhelm musical gatherings of other milder string band instruments such as guitar, mandolin, bass, and fiddle. This piercing metallic quality has made it the butt of a host of musicians' jokes. What's the difference between a banjo and a chainsaw? A chainsaw has dynamic range. In her compelling, thoroughly researched history, Christina R. Gaddy reveals a different instrument, one intimately rooted in the African diaspora and capable of expressing flights of sorrow and joy. Popular culture has tended to obscure the banjo's roots as a warm, wooden instrument built by enslaved Africans in the Americas for use in dancing and on holy days. Say the word banjo, and the mind flashes first to the satiric theme song for the 60s sitcom, The Beverly Hillbillies. The banjo on that song was played by Earl Scruggs, whose rapid-fire 1949 Foggy Mountain Breakdown featured in the soundtrack of Bonnie and Clyde, popularized the style of hard-driving three-finger banjo picking that bears his name. Scruggs' rolling, arpeggiated bluegrass technique outstripped the traditional old-time clawhammer style to become what we commonly think of as the banjo's singular sound in popular music. Associated with the 20th century with primarily Southern whites, this propulsive sound was beamed into homes by the long-running variety show Hee Haw featuring sketches like Pickin' and Grinnin' and the licks of Roy Clark. The history of the banjo following its adoption by white culture is well known. A staple of 19th century blackface minstrel shows, it also made inroads as a parlor instrument and as the basis of black tie banjo orchestras. The four-string plectrum banjo, P-L-E-C-T-R-U-M, contributed to Dixieland jazz, while the five-string resonator banjo, with its shorter drone string, features prominently in such popular acts as the Chicks, Mumford & Sons, and Bela Fleck. The instrument's black origins are harder to trace. As Miss Gaddy observes, 
Known images of the banjo before 1820 number less than 15. Her book seeks to set the record straight, to restore what the chroniclers have neglected or misrepresented regarding the banjo's importance to the culture and religion of Africans in the Caribbean and the American South. For Miss Gaddy, the banjo's resonance chamber, originally created by stretching an animal skin over a cross-cut gourd, is a well of souls, a sacred place into which the spirits are invited. Miss Gaddy follows a series of breadcrumbs back into the past, tracing passing mentions of the banjo in works such as Han Sloan's A Voyage to the Islands, Madeira, Barbados, Nevis, St. Christopher's, and Jamaica. In Jamaica in 1687, Sloan witnesses a festival of enslaved black people with, in Miss Gaddy's paraphrase, one musician playing a lute made of a round gourd that is larger than a grapefruit but smaller than a cantaloupe. The instrument has a flat neck, ornamented with crosses and diamonds, that passes through the gourd, its horsehair strings stretched over a soundboard of animal skin. Sloan dubs the instrument a strum strump. The engravings that appear in the 1707 edition of his book are the earliest printed images of the banjo. Sloan returned with the instrument to England, where he included it in his Cabinet of Curiosities, a collection of over 71,000 objects that later became the founding core of the British Museum. Miss Gaddy begins her detective work at the Richts Museum, capital R-I-J-K-S-M-E-S-E-U-M, in Amsterdam, where she comes across the papier-mâché dioramas of plantation life in Suriname by Garrick Schuyten. The son of a Dutch government clerk and a free woman of color, Shorten constructed his dioramas in the 1810s and 20s. One depicts a man playing a gore banjo and in a separate scene, men and women dancing. The women hold and wave cloths, as they also do in dances depicted by two of Shorten's contemporaries, the artist John Rose of South Carolina and Benjamin Lathrobe of New Orleans. In this context, Miss Gaddy explains, the banjo was not just a musical instrument but a spiritual device that fit into a cultural complex of music, dance, and ritual. Miss Gaddy quotes the poet Edward Kamau Braithwaite, who finds that there is no separation in African culture between religion and art. Religion is the form, or kernel, or core of the African culture. Europeans in the Caribbean didn't see the banjo the same way. Sloan believed that banjo music and the dances and ceremonies it accompanied were far from acts of adoration of a god. They were too heathen, too unchristian, too different to be religion. In Jamaica, Thomas Thistlewood couldn't abide such African superstitions. In 1773, after the practice of Obeah, O-B-E-A-H, with its invocations, fetishes, and charms had been outlawed, this plantation master happened upon an illegal gathering and reprimanded all those involved. What's more, he grabbed a banjo out of a musician's hands and chopped it all in pieces with his cutlass. Thistlewood's account of the banjo was not meant as an act of preservation, as it was with Sloan. He had decided it was an instrument that shouldn't be saved. The use of the banjo in commercial music in the last century has moved it further away from its African origins. 
Miss Gaddy sees an opportunity within the contemporary roots music scene to reacquaint listeners with the banjo's oldest traditions. As younger African-American artists like Rihanna Giddens, who provides the foreword here, take up the instrument. Miss Giddens, a Grammy winner for folk music, charts the banjo's return to its religious origins in her own work. When I first started my banjo journey, she writes, I had no idea where it would take me. I just knew I loved the sound. But as I played more and learned the history, as I picked up older styles of banjo and began to take in the warm sound of older style wooden rimmed and gourd instruments, I became aware also of an extra musical feeling when I played. Miss Gaddy's friend, Valerie Diaz Leroy, reminds us that the banjo never left the hands of black people, even when white banjo players were the norm in the public eye. The revival of interest in the banjo's crucial role in black folk music has led singer-songwriter Hannah Marie to launch the Black Banjo Reclamation Project, which puts banjos in the hands of black musicians interested in reconnecting with its past. Miss Gaddy celebrates the community-building efforts of black musicians, educators and builders in the United States, and those who are doing similar work across the Caribbean, from Jamaica, the Bahamas, Suriname and Haiti, to St. Lucia and Antigua and Barbuda. As she makes clear, the time is ripe for lovers of the banjo to learn about its hidden past. There is a painting that goes along with this reading. The name of the painting is called The Dancing Lesson. It was painted in 1878 by Thomas Aikens. Within the painting, there are images of five people. Three of them are black people. You have a teenage boy playing a banjo, a young boy around 10 who's dancing, and an older, balding, graying man who's standing back with his hand on his hip evaluating the young boy dance. There is a small frame drawing on the wall of Abraham Lincoln and his son Todd. A formal description of this painting is, this watercolor shows three male figures of different generations playing and responding to music. A framed copy of the famous photograph of Abraham Lincoln and his son Todd suggests the figure's familiar relationships and emphasizes their emancipation. This watercolor gained Aikens his first award, a silver medal at the Massachusetts Charitable Mechanic Association exhibition in Boston in 1878. That was a review of the book, Well of Souls, by Christina R. Gaddy, which appeared in the Wall Street Journal. The title of the article is The Banjo's Resonant Story and was written by David Yezzy. It appeared in the Wall Street Journal on November 12, 2022. The next reading in today's African American Hour is from the Arkansas Democrat and Gazette and its ArkansasOnline.com website. The title is USS Arkansas Ceremony to Honor Little Rock Nine. It was written by Alex Thomas and published November 19, 2022. For Joe Holden, this project stands out from the others. 
The Helena native has spent the past 17 years with defense contractor HII at its Newport News, Virginia shipyard. He's a production foreman on the Virginia-class line of nuclear-powered submarines, and his current assignment is his fourth involving a submarine. But Holden sees this submarine differently from the others. It's the USS Arkansas, the fifth vessel with such a name. It will also bear the initials of the women members of the Little Rock Nine, the black students whose enrollment at Little Rock Central High School in 1957 marked a step forward for civil rights amid pushback from angry white protesters and then-Governor Orville Faubus. HII will recognize the final phase of the construction of the Arkansas today with a keel authentication ceremony at its Newport News shipbuilding site. The event will commemorate the laying of the submarine's foundation, as well as the Little Rock Nine with shipbuilders welding the women's initials into steel plates to be placed on the submarine. Holden, who is black, described working on the submarine as a blessing. They paved the way for me to get the opportunity to do what I do, he said Friday, wearing a white Razorback sweatshirt during a media day event at the shipyard. This one is definitely special. When I found out that I was involved, I was like, oh yeah, it's on. And I want to deliver it. He added, I always do a good job, but this is close to home. To know that the thing that I'm doing is impacting the whole country, it's personal. I lived in this state. I grew up in this state. I've got people that love me that still live in this state. The women of the Little Rock Nine, Melba Patillo Beals, Elizabeth Eckford, Gloria Ray Karlmark, Carlotta Walls Lanier, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, and Thelma Mothershed Ware were named sponsors of the submarine in 2018. Females have traditionally served as naval ship sponsors. Their responsibilities include commissioning the warship when it joins the active fleet and fostering relationships with the submarine's crew. How many people really have the chance to be asked to be a sponsor of a nuclear submarine, Lanier told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. I just burst out with pride. To represent the state of Arkansas, where I was born and raised, is a positive thing, so I would hope Arkansas would see that as it should be. The Little Rock Nine have received various honors recognizing their actions in 1957, including the Congressional Gold Medal in November 1999. Yet Eckford said there is a unique distinction about being named one of the submarine's sponsors. It was something unexpected and a rarity. It's not something like any other honors that we have received, she said. Eckford joked that she was surprised the Navy selected such elderly people as sponsors. I hope I'm around for the commemoration and the christening, but I'm 81, she said with a laugh. The ceremony will additionally honor the male members of the Little Rock Nine, Ernest Green, Terrence Roberts, and Jefferson Thomas, who died in 2010. Green will join Eckford, Hallmark, Lanier, and Ware for today's ceremony. When Lanier learned that only the women would be honored with the sponsorship, she insisted that recognition be extended to all nine classmates. We are known as a group. We are known as the Little Rock Nine. It would be great to at least include the males in some form or fashion, she said. This is how it's being done, and I'm very happy about it. Green, who lives in Washington, D.C., 
had been unnoticed about being honored amid Lanier's push. When I was going to Central High School, I never expected anything like that, he said. Green said the honor connects the submarine to the Little Rock Nine in Arkansas history, but it is an additional reminder about the importance of addressing social injustice. They should know the state of Arkansas has the ability to change for the better, to be more inclusive, to expand its thinking, to recognize Little Rock Central High School as an opportunity and not as a problem, he said. Whether you're in Arkansas or New York, you have an opportunity to stand up and represent right from wrong. The Navy announced the submarine's name in November 2015 and construction followed in 2018. Newport News shipbuilding workers have worked with General Dynamics Electric Boat, a Connecticut-based submarine builder, on the project for the last four years. Crews will complete assembling the Arkansas next year with aquatic tests scheduled for 2024. The Navy will receive the submarine in 2025. The construction span of the submarine is very long, said Jason Ward, Newport News Shipbuilding's vice president of Virginia-class submarine construction. Newport News Shipbuilding Workers and General Dynamics Electric Boat began building Virginia-class submarines in 2004 with improved weaponry and reduced costs compared to prior models. The submarines use a nuclear reactor as their power source. The Arkansas is the 27th Virginia-class submarine and follows the delivery of the USS Montana and the launch of the USS New Jersey. Ward noted that the Arkansas is the second submarine designed for quartering male and female sailors. Historically, only male sailors were aboard submarines, he explained. The spaces weren't designed or intended to have private spaces and special restrooms or wash facilities. You would have to make special protocols in order to accommodate the close nature of living within a submarine. Commander Adam Kanke, capital K-A-H-N-K-E, has served as the submarine Arkansas's commanding officer for the last two years. He noted that one responsibility associated with being the first commanding officer includes establishing an appropriate culture. I've been talking to my crew about resiliency, tenacity, and overcoming adversity. And having the Little Rock Nine as the ship's sponsors is really easy to tie back to the crew and say, Look at some of the adversity and challenges that these sponsors have overcome in their lifetime, he said. Just tie that back to the ship's mission. It makes the sponsorship the perfect choice. Much of the attention today will focus on the Little Rock Nine. Newport News Shipbuilding President Jennifer Boykin said the submarine sponsorship serves as a representation of the group's historical impact. It is something she hopes younger crews understand. If you think about the initial age of the crew that will man the Arkansas, their average age is in the mid-twenties. They're young men and women from across the nation, and many of our shipbuilders are young and know the stories very well, she said. To be able to interact and be among these living legends is just unmatched. I don't think I've had a highlight like this in my 35-year career. As the Little Rock Nine and firm leaders spoke to reporters, organizers were preparing for today's event. Hundreds of chairs were lined up before a stage as shipbuilders gathered around the area to see the Little Rock Nine before the ceremony. That says a lot, Lanier said amid the preparations. That does say there are people who are very understanding of our history, what we have given to our country, not knowing this is what we were doing at the time. 
we represent quite a bit of progress as far as I'm concerned. The Little Rock Nine's mark on history is important to Holden. As work will continue on preparing the submarine, he hopes others appreciate the group's impact when they hear about the submarine's connection to the state and its history. Everything that comes behind this is made because of what these nine young men and women have done for us in the state of Arkansas, he said. Brian Jackson and Billy Williams stood with Holden as the Little Rock Nine talked with reporters. Jackson, like Holden, grew up in Helena, while Williams was raised in Newport. Jackson and Williams are also black men. As the Little Rock Nine wrapped up their interviews for Media Day, Lanier walked over to the men and introduced herself. They shared a warm exchange before Lanier walked away with her classmates. To me, they're rock stars, Jackson said. There are a couple of photographs that go along with this story. The first shows three men, all in hard hats and with hearing protection and thick hoodies, shaking hands with one of the members of the Little Rock Nine. In the background behind them all is a blue, gold, and white banner that has the official symbol for the USS Arkansas. The caption to the photograph reads, Submarine builders Billy Williams, Brian Jackson, and Joe Holden greet Little Rock Nine member Carlotta Walls Lanier during a media day event Friday at Newport News, Virginia for the USS Arkansas. All three men are Arkansas natives. The next picture is a group photograph of six members of the Little Rock Nine that were present at the submarine dedication. The caption reads, Members of the Little Rock Nine, Gloria Ray Karlmark, Collada Walls Lanier, Thelma Mothershed Ware, Elizabeth Eckford, and Ernest Green pose for a photograph with Newport News Shipbuilding President Jennifer Boykin as part of a Media Day event Friday. That was a reading of the article, USS Arkansas Ceremony to Honor Little Rock Nine. It was published in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette at its ArkansasOnline.com website on November 19, 2022. The next reading on today's African American Hour is an opinion piece from the New York Times. The title is, Why Atlanta is the Blackest Show Ever. It was published November 13, 2022 and was written by Toure capital T-O-U-R-E. I can't remember exactly when I realized Atlanta, which ended its four-season run Thursday night on FX, was the blackest show in TV history. It was probably in the midst of Rich Wigga, Poor Wigga, the episode in which high school kids, in order to qualify for a college scholarship that a wealthy black man is giving out, have to take a test to prove their blackness. Black people love to talk about what's blacker than what or who's blacker than who because for many of us, blackness is more than an ethnicity. It's a religion we love to praise. Atlanta took the notion of a racial test to the nth degree in a way that was funny but also loving. In fact, the whole show is a love letter to hip-hop culture, the city of Atlanta, and blackness itself. The scholarship test is administered by a tribunal of three middle-aged black men who ask questions about the nitty-gritty of blackness 
to prove that they understand the culture. One of the key evaluations is, what happened to that boy at Lenox Mall? One applicant, a biracial boy who is white passing and does not embrace black culture, answers with facts. A police officer killed him in a routine traffic stop. Wrong. I didn't say, what happened to that boy at Lenox Mall? The examiner intones. I said, what happened to that boy at Lenox Mall? The divining rod was this. Could you hear that he was not asking for information, but instead was commenting on the pain of yet another shooting? The correct answer was, mm, mm, mm. damn shame. Blackness is, of course, too complex to be quantified in a test, so some students who are black don't pass. The biracial boy and an African immigrant fail, and they're so angry about it that they return to the school later that night, intent on revenge, ready to burn the facility to the ground with flamethrowers. Cops arrive. The immigrant gets shot. As he lies on the hospital gurney, the wealthy black patron arrives and tells him, Getting shot by the police is the blackest thing anybody can do. He gives the boy a scholarship. I don't know if that's really the blackest thing someone can do, but that line is laughed to keep from crying funny. And that's a big part of why Atlanta is the blackest show ever. It captures the surrealism of black life in America, the sense of irrationality that warps our days. Black people know that just by walking down the street, you can fall through any number of trapdoors that lead to a bizarro world where up is down and your life is in danger. You can be bird watching in Central Park like Christian Cooper, and then the next thing you know, a white woman is calling 911 and saying you're threatening her. You can be jogging in Georgia like Ahmad Arbery when three men start chasing you in trucks and suddenly you're running for your life. Even if things don't spiral that far out of control, Black people are often assumed to be someone we are not. Even if you got on a suit, you may be a street criminal, so you're vulnerable to cops and Karens alike. When you get to your job, some people will assume you got it because of affirmative action or diversity initiatives. At any moment, you might be assumed to be intellectually below average and at the same time hyper-proficient in sports, dancing, and sex. Black life can often seem like a house of mirrors. A situation feels racist, but when you look again, you're not really sure. You don't have a way to x-ray white hearts, so now you're calculating. Are the store clerks ignoring you because they don't expect a black person to have enough money to buy anything? Or are they genuinely busy? Did you get this table in the corner because the restaurant doesn't want black people to be prominent? Or is this the only table that's open? Did you not get the promotion because of racism? Or is that younger, less experienced white person actually better? Is that cop following you because? All that analyzing can drive you mad. The constant surrealism of blackness. The way I fear the cops more than the criminals. The way I feel racism stalking me throughout my day like a horror flick monster, even if I'm not certain it's there. All of it leads me to crave oases away from the chaos and uncertainty. We need safe spaces where we can recover. Years ago, I was taught the value of black safe spaces when I was writing a story for Rolling Stone about the Black Lives Matter movement. In my time with Black Lives Matter members, I learned that they very consciously prioritize self-care as a bulwark against the impact of racism on their spirit. 
They knew that if they didn't regularly take time out to heal, they wouldn't last in the long battle against white supremacy. To them, self-care could be any activity that soothes. For the group of BLMers I hung out with in Washington, D.C., it meant going to a nearby park, choosing a small space off to the side, putting up signs saying black-only space, and sitting there in peace among black friends and family. That sort of self-segregation can be so valuable. When we remove the aggravations of dealing with whiteness, the microaggressions, the silly questions, the lack of perspective, the otherization, only then we can truly relax. For me, Atlanta was a safe space like that. It was a Black-centric world that embraced the complexity of our culture and generally ignored whiteness. There are no recurring white characters, and the main characters rarely interact with white people at all. Watching Atlanta made me feel at home. By embracing the surrealism of Black life, the show confirmed that we're not crazy to think the world is crazy. Like no other show, Atlanta made me feel seen. Atlanta is the child of French New Wave cinema and Jordan Peele's films and hip-hop culture and Adventure Time and old Kanye, a polyglot mix of influences boiled down into an amazing gumbo that has fed my soul. It's as unapologetically black as Before I Let Go by Frankie Beverly and Mays or A Gigantic Afro or an Amy Sherrill painting, or Michael Jordan smoothly flying through the air. We are in a golden age of black TV, a time when there are more great, authentic black shows than ever, and there are more empowered black TV creators than ever. And still, in an era of stiff competition, Atlanta shined above them all as the blackest. That was a reading of the opinion piece, Why Atlanta is the Blackest Show Ever. It appeared in the November 13th, 2022 edition of the New York Times and was written by Ture. Those are all the readings for this week. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.